0: Yeah, I, this week, uh, just slowly kind of started having this cold coming on. And of course it's full force this morning when I woke up and yet I'm up, so I'm here and we're gonna, we're gonna dive in and I know the Lord will get us through this. So last week, if you, if you weren't here, it was a snowy day and some people stayed home, but we did have a good crowd of people. And we, we looked at the passage that describes Jesus's ascension back to his rightful place in glory. I think about that a lot, you know, what that would have been like for Jesus to leave glory and come here and dwell among us and then be able to go back to where he belongs, to be with his Father. It must have been a wonderful day for him. Um, he got to go there, and, and he's there now interceding for us, we're told. He's at the right hand of the Father, uh, making intercession for those who trust in him for salvation. And he also is preparing a place for us so that when he comes back, we'll be able to be with him always. Always. Before ascending, in verse 4, Jesus orders his apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pick things up in, in verse 12, where he says, or excuse me, where Luke tells us that the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That's about three quarters of a mile. That's all you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. Just, so a Sabbath day's journey is a short distance. I kind of tried to imagine what it would be like for these guys after seeing Jesus ascend, what that walk back to the upper room would have been like for them. Um, probably a little weird because they, they'd been inseparable from Jesus for three years. And then they watched him be arrested, killed, and then he was resurrected. Like things are looking up again. They get to spend 40 days with him. Can you imagine what those 40 days would have been like? And then they watch them just kind of disappear out of their sight again. It's just like, ah, with this expectation to wait for something that's coming. But it would have been a lot of mixed feelings, I think. And whatever they were feeling, the event caused them to unite together and to pray together. The text tells us that the, the 11 ODs, original disciples, were gathered together. <laughs> Thank you. I got it. It was pretty good. Couldn't help it. They were gathered together, together along with the women, which is referring to the, the same women that, that traveled around with Jesus. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and, and so forth. And Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, was there. And then look who else is mentioned in that, his brothers. This is kind of cool. I don't, I don't know if you realize it, but Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, who had previously not believed in who Jesus said he was. And now here they are in the upper room with the other loyal father, followers of Jesus, as part of the core team, core group of the original church. That's just fantastic. Now they know who their their brother is, and they've they've received him themselves, which is cool. We also see the immediate inclusion of women as a core part of the church. This would have been really weird, because prior to this, if you were to go into the temple, there was the men's section of the temple, there was the women's section of the temple. They didn't join together. And here you see them together at the beginning of the church, I would just encourage you to not believe any narrative that says Christianity does, does not exalt and honor women. It's a false narrative. And people will try to teach this today and say that Christianity does not uphold women. They do. Look at any country where Christianity is left out. And look at the way the women are treated there. It's very clear how Jesus feels about women. Um, the gospel somehow just puts us on this, this, this equal playing field. We have different roles. We have different responsibilities. But in Christ, we are one and we are are valued. It's also important to note the vital role that prayer held at the beginning of the church. They were devoted to it from the beginning and nothing has changed. You and I should be just as devoted to prayer today. Verse 14 tells us that they were all of one accord, which means one mind, one purpose, and one passion. And as Christians, we're not always going to agree on things. You have probably noticed that. But we should all be pulling in the same direction. If we are all filled with the same Holy Spirit, there should be a unity that exists between us. Um, an example of this is, is uh, when, when your pastors get together and meet for, for, to decide things. We generally will come into our meetings sometimes with very different... You know, if you know David and Terry and I, we're very different, which is good. And sometimes we come into meetings with very different ideas of how things should go. And it's kind of entertaining sometimes to watch what happens. We will talk it out and we will leave in one accord um, separate vehicles, but you got it. I think it's, it's a rule that you have to have at least one corny joke about, about traveling in one accord. <clears throat> Sorry. Hey, I'm sick. You got to give me a break. I love that when we leave these meetings though, we're unified, we come out of there with a decision we all feel right about. And that doesn't mean that we always get our own way. Uh, but it does mean that we, we, come to a consensus that's that's good the church should be unified and when we don't agree with each other it's a good thing to talk it through to find common ground to seek understanding Um, that's something we need to work at the church is called to maintain unity and that means we do have to 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 get into each other's lives and work through some things sometimes so this idea that we we have today that um, if somebody doesn't see the same thing or see the uh, see things the way you do that they're the problem or that they're evil or that they're whatever. That's kind of what we see continually happening in the world today. That's ridiculous. Some of the things that are going on right now in our country, five years ago, people had a very a different opinion about the things that they're digging in on now and saying that, that we can't do this. And it's like five years ago, you said it was a good idea. Now you're saying, People are going to change their minds. This kind of stuff happens. It's ridiculous to think that just because somebody doesn't agree with you, that they're the problem or the enemy that doesn't belong in the church. And again, the Holy Spirit indwelling us should, should unify us together. So verse 15, we transition into another event where a large number of believers are gathered, and Peter brings up the need for them to find Judas' replacement to get back to having 12 apostles again. And it might be a good idea just for a second to answer the question, what is an apostle? Um, the word apostle literally means one who is sent out. In the New Testament, we see two uses of the word apostle the first one specifically refers to the 12 apostles and the second generally refers to individuals who were sent out to be messengers or ambassadors of Christ uh, we like to refer to them as big a apostles and small a apostles all right the big a apostles are all gone now their job was to be the first messengers that would go out and establish the foundation of the new testament church they were given authority An ability, crazy ability, to do do these signs and wonders among the people that would authenticate and perpetuate Christianity. So for instance, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, we read this about the apostles, the big A apostles. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. You know, they just hung out at Solomon's porch and did amazing, crazy miracles in front of the crowds of people. But the goal was to bring people to Christ and to authenticate the church. But the big A apostles are all gone today, like I said. If someone is out there putting a big A next to apostle in their title, run away. <laughs> They're dangerous. Bad news. Don't, don't go there. Um, we do believe, though, that small A apostles are still um, have a role to play in the church today. They don't have the same authority or the same role or the same gifting that the 12 did. But as we go through the New Testament, you will see that other people are given the title apostle, like Barnabas and Silas and so forth. Uh, When you think of one who is sent out, what comes to mind? I think missionaries come to mind and church planters come to mind. So it's, it's kind of those slightly crazy and fearless folks that are willing to charge headlong into the darkness to save souls. That's what I think of when I think of these small-a apostles in the church today. In that sense, we, we refer to Pastor David as an apostolic pastor. He's one of those crazy people that wants to just charge into the darkness, you know, without any any uh, safety harnesses or anything. You know, I'm all about, let's, let's get the helmet on, let's get the, you know, and I'm not talking about the spiritual armor, I'm talking about just personal safety here. Bubble wrap. I like bubble wrap Christianity. He's more like, no, let's just dive in, and, and I, don't, I don't think that way. Per se, But Ephesians 4 talks about how there are different gifts given to the church for the building up of the church and for the equipping of the saints for ministry. And so Ephesians 4.11 says he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So we would see those small apostles are the ones who, whose main gift is to be on the lookout for what's next. They're the ones leading the charge to storm the next beachhead for the gospel, right? And so that's why if you are around David, um, you'll notice that he's kind of got ants in his pants a lot. He's he's raring to go on to the next thing. He's always thinking about the next dark place on the map that we can go to. And and once the work is established, he's ready to move on to the next thing. So get used to kind of seeing him move around because he's going to. Uh, He's not going to be always, you know, at this location. He's looking for the next one as well. So back to verse 15, they meet to fill Judas' spot with another big A apostle. In those days, it says, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. We're beginning to see an interesting change in Peter. Peter, one that will be enhanced immeasurably when the Holy Spirit comes, but, but you're starting to see something happen in, in him. You remember at the end of John when Jesus restores Peter and he tells him, feed my, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, care for my sheep. He, he kind of puts this baton in Peter's hands and you start to see Peter understand this calling and authority that God has given him. And he's accepting it and he's, he's kind of running with it. And it's exciting to see when that happens. You know, God has called many of us in this church to things. And, and to, to have that authority handed to you and that responsibility given to you and, and to accept it and run it, it is good. We want to find those, those gifts that people have and those callings that people have and, and allow you to walk in those things as well. Jesus had also just spent 40 days of quality time with, with these guys. And verse 2 tells us that until the day he was taken up, He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So you see this this 40 days of basically getting these guys ready for for what was going to happen. They understood their calling, and they were now ready to walk in it. Peter also refers to a scripture spoken of by King David that had to be fulfilled regarding Judas. And it's probably Psalm 41.9, although he doesn't mention it, which says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, lifted his heel against me. That's what Judas did. He betrayed Christ. And it was all part of God's plan, but it still had to have been extremely difficult for these 11 guys. This, this man they trusted that they'd walked with for three years and thought they knew was the enemy in their camp. You know? So this would have been really difficult, and replacing him and moving on would have been kind of exciting, actually, I imagine, and important. Well, in verse 18, if you haven't looked ahead, get ready, brace yourselves. Dr. Luke decides to give us an autopsy report on Judas. And this is not a verse that one looks forward to reading in church on a Sunday morning in mixed company. So, but it's in the Bible and I'm going to read it. And if you just stop for a second and think about who Judas was and what he did, this is the one who betrayed our Lord. This is the one who for a little cash came up and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And, and when I think about Judas something kind of comes up in me and I get angry. And so maybe this verse, if nothing else, can, can be like a little bit of righteous judgment that comes his way for what he did to Jesus. But verse 18 says regarding Judas, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. That's kind of heavy. If you're familiar with the gospel account in Matthew, you know that this might sound like a contradiction because that tells us that immediately after Judas realized what he had done, he went out and hanged himself. And so, um, I'm not going to get further into the possibility of gory details on this particular thing here, but I believe what Luke is recording here actually supplements that information and does not contradict it. And I'm not going to go into much more detail than that. If you want to, we can get together for, for lunch, maybe, you know, I'm just kidding, <laughs> and, and get, you know, really talk it through. Uh, But I don't think it's contradictory at all. I think it actually makes sense if you were to to dwell on it. But don't. Don't dwell on it right now. Peter goes on in verse 19 to say that this field became known to all the inhabitants inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Peter quotes um, Psalms, two different Psalms and interprets them um, to defend their position or their decision to add a 12th apostle. And then next he lays out the criteria for what's needed to qualify to be an apostle. In verse 21 he says, So one of the men who have accompanied, accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the criteria they came up with was that it had to be someone who had witnessed both Jesus' baptism and his resurrection and kind of everything in between, somebody that had been with them on that journey. And they put forth two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So Matthias, uh, they cast lots, which was a common practice in the Old Testament. You don't see it much in the New Testament. It's basically the equivalent of what, you know, we flip a coin, uh, heads or tails, basically kind of that same idea. Uh, Matthias is the one who, I guess, got heads. Uh, I always pick heads. I don't know why, but, uh, and probably good because the other guy had three names, which is very confusing. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I thought that was funny. I remember I worked with a guy one time and the first day he came in, he said, I go, oh, what, you know, what, what, what do you go by? Well, uh, you can go by Will, Bill, William, or Liam. And I'm like, you know, you decide, you know, it's your name, buddy. You don't need to. Yeah. And so we, we, we picked Will anyway. Casting lots. Um, there's some question about this. So the interesting question that people have considered over the ages is, was Matthias the guy whom God appointed to be the 12th, or was it supposed to be Paul, and they jumped the gun? And it's not something we necessarily have to you know, figure out or can figure out, but it's interesting to consider. I don't think there's any doubt that Paul was a big A apostle. Just like the other 11 apostles, um, he did witness the resurrection of Christ. He was familiar with 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 all that had gone on in, in those things. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and kind of hand-picked Paul, if you know what I mean, to to, to take him and, and send him out to do, um, to do ministry, just like the other apostles. Paul had supernatural powers as well. And it's fair to say the guy was pretty effective. He was a pretty decent apostle, right? Yeah. Um, in Acts 9.15... The risen Jesus said of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, one could argue that maybe he was the apostle for the Gentiles and and the other 12 were the apostles to the Jews. We don't know for sure. There is a way to find out for sure. I just don't have access to it yet. But one day, according to Revelation 21:14, in the New Jerusalem, it says, The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I'm going to look. I am going to check just to find out. i got to know. I'm dying to find out. Is it Paul or Matthias? Are you team Paul or team Matthias? My point isn't to try to convince anyone that the apostles got it wrong. They may have been 100% correct in what they did. Uh, Most commentators seem to go that direction, which makes me feel funny, but uh, you know, it's not the first time I've been out there on my own, I guess. Um, It's possible. The outcome was exactly what the Lord wanted, but it's also possible that they jumped the gun. I find it curious that one of the last things that Jesus told them was wait for the promise of the father, the Holy spirit who he told them would guide them into all truth. All right. So if you're getting ready to make a really important decision, I don't know, wait a couple days for the, the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. That seems logical to me as opposed to casting lots. In fact, after the Holy Spirit comes, you don't see lots being cast for decisions anymore. I try to think about that like in an elder meeting, you know, we'd be like, you know, get a quarter out and be like, all right, heads, you know, Jim gets to be the pastor and tails. It's Rick, you know, you would, it seems like a weird way to decide something, but in fairness, they had two good choices. Uh, Either one of these guys could have been, you know, they were both qualified to be in this position according to what they decided. So maybe they just had a lot more faith than I have and what they did was absolutely right. This is a good time to bring up the difference um, of passages in the Bible that are descriptive versus prescriptive. A descriptive passage is simply a passage that tells you what happened. Okay. A prescriptive passage is one that tells you what to do. The book of Acts covers a great deal of history, which means that it's largely descriptive. A book like James is largely prescriptive. It's it's telling you what, you know, the epistles that Paul wrote. A lot of those are very prescriptive. And it's important to understand the difference. For instance, the passage that tells us that Judas went out and hanged himself. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Yeah, you want to get that one right, right? That is very much descriptive. The passage that says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, is prescriptive. You need to do that, right? So one of the reasons that people have such a hard time understanding the Old Testament is that they, they largely try to read it prescriptively, and, and a lot of it is descriptive. And even some of the things that are prescriptive in the Old Testament or were prescriptive are no longer under the, under the New Covenant. So you really do need to think this through and understand it. It's important generally speaking, we have this tendency, I believe, to try to reduce things down to prescriptive lists. We like lists of rules. Give me three steps, right? Give me three steps and I'll, I'll check those off and then I'll have arrived at whatever I'm looking for. And that's not always how it works. Do you remember that? The, 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 uh, the prayer of Jabez, this is a book that was like uh, it sold millions of dollars or sold millions of copies, made millions of dollars and really It was based on a descriptive passage in the Old Testament, this little obscure verse that became this method that if you buy this book and pray this prayer, you can actually get what you want from God. And it sold millions. It's crazy to me. A descriptive passage that wasn't prescribing anything like this. People ate it up. I can imagine somebody taking this passage that we're in today and and turn it into a method for making decisions, right? Step one, meet together. Devote yourself to prayer. Step two, make sure you're all of one accord. Step three, find at least two scriptures to back up your plan. Step four, narrow your decision down to two choices. And step five, cast lots to determine God's will for your life. I mean, this I could picture somebody writing a book like this. You'd make millions. Don't do it, please. But you could write a book, and people would buy it, and they would, go, they would run through these steps, because that's what we like to do. Now, even though this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive, there are still some good principles that we can apply from it when it comes to making godly decisions. And so I think it's fair to say that most of us um, would like to to know how to determine God's will for our lives when making decisions. And so now we are moving to the practical portion of our program. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) So now you can start taking notes because maybe this is what you'll need today. When it comes to God's will for our lives, um, we can divide it into two categories. His revealed will and his concealed will. Where can we discover God's revealed will? The Bible is the right answer. That's where we see God's revealed will. Um, When we properly interpret his holy word, we, we can tell clearly what he wants in many areas. And if it's revealed for us in his word, we don't have to pray about it or wonder what to do. You know, what in the world should I do? Like, should I lie or should I not lie? Well, God says I hate lying lips. So there's really not anything to talk about. He revealed that he doesn't like lying. He doesn't like stealing. So you shouldn't have to have that, you know, when you're standing in the store looking at a candy bar thinking, do I take it? Do I not take it? You know what? I wonder what God would have me do. It's revealed. You don't need to wonder about it, right? And there's a lot of things like this that are revealed in God's word that I see Christians Either they act like they don't know it's there or they just ignore that it's there. But but he's very clear in a lot of areas, like sex. Very clear about what he wants. Sex outside of marriage, between a man and a woman, is something the Bible never says is okay. It's just there. He gives us his revealed will in, in regards to marriage, divorce, money, sobriety. You can just go on and on and on and on. So when it comes to these things, we don't have to, you know, wrestle with what would God have me do. He's told us. But when it comes to his concealed will... That stuff isn't explicitly laid out for us in the Bible sometimes. So that's where we have to move to other, you know, other areas. So like, for instance, what job should I take? Who should I marry? Um, should I move or should I stay where I am? Uh, where should I serve in my local church? That's, that was, a, that was a more of a suggestion. These are things that you should try to find out, right? So, so where do we look when God's will isn't clear? When we've searched the Scriptures and we can't come up with an answer, the next place to go is to your knees. Spend time in prayer, seeking His will, and ask others to pray also. Now, this is important. I find when you spend time on your knees and you get other people praying in the same, you know, for the same type of thing, you're going to come up with an answer. You're going, to find, you're going to come up with some kind of a consensus. Because, again, if each of us is filled with the Holy Spirit and we're asking Him to lead us and guide us into all truth... And to convict us when, when you know, or to, to warn us when something's wrong, that's going to that's gonna come out. You're going to start to figure that out. And it's possible to experience this peace of God when we're walking in step with the Spirit or the conviction of God's Spirit when we're not. But I would also warn you that the Holy Spirit does have some competition, namely a selfish fool called you, right? And, and that's more of me I'm talking to you right here. But you have this old self who wants his way, too. And so we have to be careful because the old self can be really convincing. The Bible goes so far as to say that our hearts are deceitful and wicked at times. And so we can kind of formulate what we want to hear and what we want to see and what we want to do and and ignore God's spirit. We can quench the spirit. And so we need to be careful about that and not deceive ourselves. The next way for determining God's will in our life is very important, but ridiculously ignored by people. And I'm kind of stumped by this one, but that is to seek godly counsel. I'm always amazed at the life-altering decisions people make without ever getting any counsel at all or getting it and completely ignoring it. People will decide that they're going to get married or, or move or, you know, these big decisions in life and they don't, they don't ever consult. Well, even us sometimes as pastors, I, it's, it's very rare that we get a call for somebody to say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to make a big decision. Would you guys give me counsel? And we'd love to do that. We just had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to sit down with somebody who was trying to make a big life decision and we got to counsel with them and, and meet with them and pray. And it was great. It was a privilege for us to do that. Those meetings are way better than some of the meetings we have to have. You know, it's kind of nice every once in a while to get one of those peppered in there occasionally because it's like, that was cool. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So take advantage of the godly people around you who know you and love you and care about what happens to you, right? If everybody around you tells you it's a bad decision that you love and that you trust, it's probably a bad decision. You know, I've I've run into those times where it's like, you know, they they want like somebody wants to date somebody and everybody in their life saying that person is a creep. They don't love Jesus. They're not, you know, and they're just like, no, they don't listen. It's like, why would you not listen to that? If everybody sees it, but you, you know, find people that are kind of can step back and be objective every once in a while. That's good for us. So, if seeking godly counsel is the thing that people tend to somehow leave out or ignore the most, the next thing I'm going to mention, and I'll probably step on toes, seems to be what people desire to run to the most and rely on the most, even though I would say it's probably the, the most subjective thing we can look to. And maybe sometimes even the most unreliable thing we look to, but it's the one people go to. And that would be special revelation. Things like signs and prophecies and dreams. Um, I don't know what it is about those, but that's how we want to hear from God. Those are the things we don't, you know, even over his word. I see this sometimes people, instead of getting into the word or getting on their knees or seeking counsel, look for a sign from the heavens. Give me something big, Lord, so that I'll know what your will is. And, and, and I, you know, it's not that those things can't happen. I think some of those things can actually be confirming when you accompany them with these other things we've talked about, but, but they shouldn't be the only thing we go to or pay attention to. And I see people do this where they get a word of some kind and that becomes, thus saith the Lord. That's like the voice of God to them. And there's nothing you can say to change their mind. And I've watched people make horrible decisions doing this. So so I'm just warning you in love right here. I've, I've seen people get married because God told them that they were supposed to marry that person. And they come back later and say, oops, that's a big decision, right? I, I, I know a guy... Um, I've known him for a long time, and he had this thing happen when he was really young, where he was at a youth event, and somebody actually, uh, the, the speaker guy was a prophetic guy, apparently, and told him, you have a calling on your life to preach. And he's lived his entire life believing that he has a calling on his life to preach. Now, the problem is, he's kind of my age, and he's never preached. He's never, nobody else has ever seen that in him. He doesn't seem to have a desire to get into God's Word. He doesn't seem to have the gift of teaching. He doesn't seem to have, I don't see any of that in him. But he believes it still because somebody that he met that day told him that, and he's held on to this thing, and it's controlled his life in a really strange way. He feels like he's just failed completely because he's never done this thing. I don't even know if it was a real thing. Could it be? Sure, it could be confirming. But just be careful. You know, we can, again, you can use these things to, I believe, to get what you want if you're not careful. I mean, you can literally say, God, give me a sign. I'm thinking about leaving my job. And you look up in the tree, and you see a leaf. Ah! Uh, There, a leaf move. I should leave my job. You know, it's like, and I'm not trying to make fun of this. I I mean, but you can, you can, if you want to see something bad enough, you can create signs yourself. Now, I've also had times where I remember when we considered moving to Oregon, I was struggling with this idea and I was listening to a radio program. And this sounds kind of counterproductive, but the, the guy on the radio said, you know, sometimes God isn't just going to tell you, you know, you need to move to Oregon. And he said it on the radio and I was like going, wow. Maybe I'm supposed to move to Oregon, which we do. <laughs> so can God use those things to help confirm? Yes, he can. But I would say, a theologian I respect greatly one time recommended that when it comes to these things, we should at best treat them as advice from a good friend and not the voice of God. So just be careful when it comes to those things. And when you do make a decision in your life, Look at the circuit, look at the fruit, pay attention to what what that did. You know, sometimes people will dig in, right? And they'll say, no, this is the decision that God wants me to make. And everything around them is like burning down to the ground. I don't know, maybe step back and be objective and say, maybe this wasn't a great decision. Be willing to abandon ship if it's a a bad one. The last thing I would say in regards to helping you make good decisions is is simply this, have patience. And I know for a lot of you, that's like a bad word. (laughs) You know, you go, what? Yeah. Learn to wait on the Lord. You've probably heard the old adage that sometimes God opens a door, sometimes He closes a door, and sometimes He makes us wait in the hallway. Right? Nobody likes the hallway. It's, it's not fun there. And most of us, you know, we get, we get antsy there, and we try to find a way out, kind of like what Abraham did. You know, we 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 decide, well, this is taking a little too long. I better help God out. So you start kicking down the drywall and finding a new hole to get through. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's how you end up with Ishmael, right? That's why we can't have nice things right there. We need to learn to wait on God and to trust him. And don't try to help him out. I even wonder with the apostles because they did that thing where they, they narrowed it down to two choices and and kind of said, okay, God, here's, here's the two choices that you have now and and pick one. And I I find myself doing that again. I'm not trying to say the apostles are wrong. Maybe they were right, but did they ever consider that maybe God had another option, a better option? Because I do that, I'm like, okay, God, I've narrowed it down. I've really thought this through, and near as I can tell, these are the two good ones here for you to pick from. And it's like, you know, like this is this is God we're we're talking about here. Do you think maybe He might have something I didn't think of, something that might blow my mind, that could be better? Of course. And I think He delights in doing that. I actually think He gets a kick out of it sometimes, just by going, hey, what about this option over here? Huh? Is that better? Yeah, it is better, God. I can't imagine. I would have never thought of that. He's that way. So when it comes to determining God's concealed will, don't limit yourself to just one of these things we talked about. Bring them all in. You're going to come up with a better decision if you commit it to prayer, if you rely on the Holy Spirit and trust Him, if you get godly counsel, and if you do pay attention to what God is doing around you in in, in the special revelation kind of things. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 when it comes to the idea of trying to understand what God would have us do when it comes to trying to make a good choice and, and you have different options that are good. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It's pretty cool. Now, more important than how you go about making decisions in life is that you are trusting the one that loves you in spite of them. And I'm so thankful for this, because I've made a lot of really bad choices, and I continue to make some some doozies sometimes. That's why I need Jesus so desperately because he went to the cross fully aware of all the bad decisions we would make. And he died for us, and he died for those bad decisions anyway. And the amazing thing about our sovereign God is that his plans and purposes aren't interrupted by the decisions we make. You know, we can completely blow it and do something wrong, and he can get things right back on track without even any effort at all. He knows how to work with failure and failures, and he knows how to redeem our messes. Proverbs 16.33 ties into this pretty nicely because it tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And I take comfort in that. I can't mess this thing up. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, it doesn't matter. If I have placed my trust in Jesus Christ and I'm all in there, then this other stuff, will there be consequences? Sure. But I can't mess this thing up. I know what's going to happen in the end. And I like that. You know, as a dad, I've, I've watched my kids go through the process of decision-making. And there have been times when they, they nailed it and made me proud. And there have been times where they got it wrong. And, and I had to watch some painful things happen in their life because of it. That's very hard as a dad to, to, to you know, you get, when they get older. And my kids are older now. They're 22 to 29, I think. I should know that. But even though it grieved me to see them make wrong decisions... It didn't change my heart for them. It didn't it didn't cause me to stop loving them. Never that. And your heavenly Father is the same way. You know, he's given you he's given you a long a long rope, a long leash, so to speak. You know, he gives us freedom to make decisions. But he's given us everything we need to guide us through life, right? We talked about these things. We have the ability to make life giving decisions that lead to blessing if we seek him. Some of you have been living in a way that you know doesn't align with your Father's will. And some of you are paying consequences for it. You don't have to. You can repent from these things. You can go to the the God who redeems things and who makes beautiful things out of our messes. And you can hand it off to Him and say, I'm ready to start doing it your way again, Father. A good dad will always pull his kids back in and love them and dust them off and send them back out on a good path again. I want you to know the choices you make do matter. But the biggest choice, the most important choice, the choice that stands head and shoulders above every other choice is what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Who is he to you today? Are you willing to trust him for this life and for the life to come? That's the most important thing you could do right now. Father, I just thank you so much that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness through your word. You've revealed yourself to us in a way that is amazing. We're in awe of who you are. We thank you so much that you have not left us with our bad choices, but you sent Jesus Christ to the cross to redeem those choices, those sins that we've made, the ways that that, that we alienated ourselves from you. Jesus has come so that we can have his righteousness. Thank you so much, Lord, for his life that he lived, for the death that he died, Thank you that we know he was raised from the dead and that he's ascended to you where he makes intercession for us even now. I'm greatly comforted by that. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know who Jesus is and doesn't understand the work that he's accomplished on their behalf, that they would ask more about it today and that each person here will be fully trusting in who Christ is and what he's done in this life and in the life to come. Amen.